Thank you, honey. We are so glad to be here this evening. Um, I was uh, talking with Pastor Pierpont earlier, just what a joy it is to fellowship with you, uh, to be uh, worshiping with you, to share in the word of God together with you. Um, We had a great time with the youth this morning up in uh, their class and uh, taught a message from Proverbs about running from sin and turning from evil, uh, that they might be blessed of the Lord. And uh, we're just so glad to be here today. Um, And I want to share with you uh, something that's uh, deep on my heart and something that uh, I'm learning. I am constantly uh, finding my own imperfections. And uh, so I want to share with you something that uh, I've been thinking about since before I came to seminary and a particular passage that I uh, have spent a lot of time thinking about, something that's central to ministry but also central to every single one of you in the Christian life. I'd like to open up in a short word of prayer before we do that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this this time where we can freely open your word and proclaim your truth, when we can sing about the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the wonderful work that was accomplished through him for us. Thank you for the freedoms that we have in this nation where we can do that. I pray that you, uh, that you would uh, anoint me, Lord, for the preaching of your word this evening, that I would be able to boldly proclaim and expose your truth. Simply be a, a one who exposes your truth that's contained in your divine revelation in your scriptures, Lord, this evening, so that my life can be changed, so that uh, the lives of the people here, your people, could truly be changed by the application of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. About seven years ago, I was in a program called ALERT. It's an acronym that stands for the Airland Emergency Resource Team. Some of you may know about it. It's a disaster relief search and rescue uh, team designed to train young men for service. It's a Christian organization, so it's, uh, everything is geared towards around service for the glory of God, service for the kingdom of God. And uh, part of the training begins with a 10-week boot camp. We call it basic training. And uh, my younger brother has also been involved in this. During basic training, you get all kinds of instruction on disaster relief and search and rescue training. Uh, they beat you up physically as much as possible, uh, try to get you to the point where you feel like you cannot go any farther without relying on other people around you and relying upon God. Part of the 10-week basic training is also an orienteering course, a course where they've lined us all up on the side of of the road at the edge of five square miles of rugged wilderness, forests, trees, you know, creeks and hills, and they said, oh, here's a map and a compass and a little bit of food and some water, and we want you to go from point A across this stretch of land to point B, and want you to fall within a certain destination point, with only within about 100 yards of a particular setting on your compass. We want you to arrive right here. So we all lined up, but everybody in line had a little bit different destination point. And, and uh, the, the uh, compass setting was to be set a little bit differently. And so we all had our individual courses. As we started out, the temptation was to look around because we were only about maybe 50 feet apart. 
well, I wonder where that guy's going. Hmm, it's kind of interesting. And uh, one guy in my squad kind of had this, what he thought was a wise idea to follow, just kind of hang back a little bit, thinking, well, you know, the point on the other side can't be that much different for me than for the guy next to me. So I'm not going to mess with the compass or the map. And I'm just going to follow this guy or a couple guys and kind of hang back and track them through the woods. And then I'll just land on the other side and it'll be good. It'll be a lot easier than trying to navigate my way and actually follow this map precisely. Although the only problem was his plan didn't quite work out very well. In fact, it didn't work out at all. After three tries, he'd arrive on the other side and he'd be so far off, they'd send him all the way back to the start and say, start over. So he'd start back again and back around, start over. It was, uh, we started this at about 9 o'clock in the morning, and I think it was about 10 o'clock at night before they finally said, you failed, uh, go back to the rest of the guys. He'd done this all day long, trying to do it his own way, trying to not follow the compass and disregarding the map. In a similar way, you and I often find ourselves really surrounded uh, Trying, surrounded by this world system, and we're trying to navigate in surroundings that are entirely counter, entirely against the orientation that's been given to us in the message of the cross, entirely different to what Christ has uh, told us to do in his word. Yet we, we find ourselves in this, in the perspective that, that so many of us, including myself, find ourselves acting out is not in tune with the message of the cross, but, but with this orientation of the world. And so this need here that we have is, is that the effects of such a construed view of the cross and the Christian life are devastating. They can, they've, I've seen them lead to church splits. I've seen them lead to uh, seminary chaos, uh, which crumble. Uh, I've seen them destroy... This, this perspective destroy marriages. I've seen it destroy lives. I've seen this, this uh, orientation of the world and, and, and uh, disregarding the, the, the compass that Christ has laid down in his word. Disregarding that, I've seen it reap devastating results. Yet so many of us uh, find ourselves, I find myself often falling back into it. Because that's what the other guys are doing, or it seems easier. Most importantly, I think this problem has led to the label hypocrite being synonymous with the term Christian, almost. Out in the world's eyes, it, oh, you're one of those hypocrite Christians. Yeah, just that's what I, I, what I gather, is I'm out on the streets and I say I'm a Christian, or I'm a follower of Christ. They automatically expect you to be a fake. Well, you do one thing on Sunday and you do another thing on Monday. Because they expect us to follow the orientation or, or that they're following. And yet we say we're of Christ. We are still in Christ. Yes, we are. Yet living so often in a navigational system that is counter the gospel. Think about it. Who or what is your go-to name? Are you first a, first a Christian or are you such and such, and then secondly, a Christian? Are you more known by your job title than by Christ and his cross? 
When people come up to you and say, so who are you? Do you automatically go to uh, where you got your education, what school you went to, your family, your church even? Your church facilities even, dare I say, even your political party? When people say, what do you like? It should simply be the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the compass of a follower of Christ. All this other stuff, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is, is not of importance to those who are following Jesus Christ. You might fill in the blank. I am of so-and-so. Hmm, I don't know. I have found myself often, uh, a friend of mine, before I came to seminary, uh, he and I were sitting at dinner one time, and I was getting ready to go off to DTS. It was just before. I think it was uh, just a couple minutes before I left. And, and he was listening to me go on about how excited I was to go to Dallas Seminary. And I, and I was going through all this this huge laundry list of people, I knew that these prominent names that went to DTS, oh, you know, uh, uh, Chuck Swindoll, and going on down the list, and he said, he just, like, Michael, you're pretty excited about these people, aren't you? And I had to just gulp, and I said, well, you know, I mean, they're just excited about, you know, they, this is reputation of the school, this is the kind of teaching that, you know, this school puts out these people, right? And he said, Michael, you're, you're talking about personalities. You're more excited about personalities than about the gospel or about the word of God that this school is supposed to teach. You're more excited about particular people that have a wide reputation, that are well-known, that have maybe power or prominence. You're more excited about that than about the real purpose why you're going to seminary in the first place. So I find myself often just slipping back into this, this navigational mode of the world system. Uh, Paul, if you could open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul had planted the church at Corinth, and these believers were, were in Christ, for sure. They had realized that and, and grasped the hold of the, 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 the message of the cross, and they had come to know the Savior they had realized that the blood of the Son of, of God had come and had been shed for their propitiation of their sins, and they had been redeemed. They had entered into new life. The cross of Christ had brought them from darkness to, to light, from death to life. Look at, look at verse, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to see this. I want you to see this here. Verse 2, there's no question that the church at Corinth is in Christ. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They have been, they are in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. They're in Christ Jesus. But now look at verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And he goes on to talk about these quarrels that he had been alerted to by Chloe's people. They had come to him and, and told him, 
things are going wrong here. And so he writes in verse 12. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul and, and I have Apollos and I have Cephas and I have Christ. And he asks three rhetorical questions. Has Christ been divided? No, is the is the answer. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? No. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. And then he writes in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you are baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ, here's the point, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. They were in Christ Jesus. They had received new life. Yet something was entirely wrong. The church was divided into sectarian groups. You see, the church at Corinth was acting out of a very Greek mind. They were mostly Gentile believers. And the, the setting in Corinth and in all over the Greco-Roman world was, a, was a, centered around philosophical schools of thought. And they were responding out of that same mentality that same orientation. You had a group of three or four guys and they'd say, well, you know, I'm of Apollos. See, he was trained under Paul. He's a disciple of Aquila and Priscilla. He knows what he's talking about. And the other guy, well, I'm of Paul. See, he trained Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla. And they'd go back and forth saying, who is the better, better speaker? Who is the better uh, orator? Who is more clever in their speech? And Paul's saying, I didn't come to you in cleverness of speech, but to preach the gospel That the cross of Christ would not be made void. Because that's the point. It's not about who has more clever speech or who is a better orator or who has more prominence in the community or who has a wider reputation in the world at large or who's even planted the most churches. It's not about people. It's about the cross of Christ, period. That is the point. And the church at Corinth didn't understand it. Even though they were in Christ... The point of this whole book is that they aligned their position before God. Excuse me. They aligned their progressive sanctification with their position before God. That their their walk with Christ would actually be aligned with their new position in Christ. That they follow in these real life implications of the new life that they had received. And the first lesson Paul has for them is the centrality of the cross in the message of the gospel, that it is countercultural. It is countercultural. When I was five years old, I, I came to Jesus Christ. It was uh, around Easter time, and my mom and I, who's sitting over here, they came down from up here, uh, were sitting at our kitchen table, and there we were watching a television uh, depiction of the Jesus film. They were showing the Jesus film and then sharing how they were uh, going around the land of India and showing this film to villagers and how people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And every time I had, I had previously seen the uh, depictions of Christ's crucifixion, and as a little child, I'd run under the kitchen table or I'd go hide when it came to the scenes where they showed the nails going through his hands and his feet 
and him being whipped and the crown of thorns being pressed into his head. But something didn't allow me to do that this time. In fact, I believe it was the Holy Spirit prompting me to just stay fixed on what was going on. And I watched the whole scene as they drove the nails into Christ's hands and they, they nailed him to the cross and he was bleeding and bruised and beaten. And he died for me. That depiction showed. And my mom turned to me and she said, Michael, do you, do you want to receive Christ as your Savior? See, this is showing what Christ did for you and for me, that he came into the world so that sinners like you, can have a relationship with the Holy God. And I came to Christ. Yet, I still struggle with this world system, with this navigational orientation that's so centered on man, so human-centered rather than God-centered. Do you do that same thing too? What is your go-to name or or your, uh, your academic pedigree that you uh, count on to get you places or to make friends. Even us uh, training to go into the ministry struggle with that. We sure do. Maybe more than others. But the cross of Christ is countercultural to the norms of the day. Just like it was in the church of Corinth, so it is today. We find ourselves wrapped up in, in these, in these uh, systems where it's all about how many people we've got coming into the church on Sunday morning. That's wonderful. We can rejoice in, in how many people are gathering. But when pastors get into uh, ego battles about who's got more coming, you know, and, and it's all about the size, something's wrong. Or when me as a seminary student is more excited or quotes more often my professors than the Bible. I've been at seminary too long. And it happens. This is the message that Paul wants to tell the church at Corinth. But it's, he's not finished. He's not finished. He's going to drive it home. Verse 18 in chapter 1, it says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the power of God, fully demonstrated and revealed. That, that, a man, that the transcendent God would come in the form of a man and be bruised and whipped and abused and laughed at and mocked and scoffed and maligned and nailed to a cross and die for the sins of those who would believe. That is the full demonstration of God's power. God chose to come as in the form of, of a baby and to live a sinless life, but then to die on the cross of Calvary. That is the full demonstration of the power of God. That is really hard for me to grasp. That somehow, enwrapped in the cross is the power of God. But that is what it says. That is what Paul says. That is what the word of God says. For the word of the cross 
is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The world doesn't get it. The world's orientation system doesn't get it. It's laughable that you would follow a Jew nailed to a Roman cross is laughable to the world. It was laughable to the Greek philosophers in Corinth, and it's laughable to the world today. On television, they scoff at us. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. In the cross, God's full demonstration of his omnipotence is revealed to us. What is that power? It's humility. Unbelievable humility and self-sacrificial love. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He's emphasizing the point here. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. To Gentiles, foolishness. There he is repeating the thought. It's a mockery to them. To these guys who sit around in circles and say, Well, I'm of so-and-so. I read Plato. I read Socrates. I read Aristotle. The cross of Christ is foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, verse 24, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's even that we can't even understand it. Maybe it's beyond our finite minds, the infinite mind of God. It surely is. That the full demonstration of God's power and God's wisdom could be revealed in the cross This goes against all cultural norms. So what is your go-to name, or where do you find your compass? Just like uh, my friend uh, down in Texas, he decided he was going to kind of do it his own way. And the world doesn't even have an anchor point. They're all doing it their own way. Yet God has given us clear direction in his word what our anchor point is. So we find that not only that the cross of Christ brings us from darkness to light, from death to life, the cross of Christ completely overturns the cultural norms of the day. Look with me down in verse 30 and 31 now. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification, so that justice, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. But by his doing, not by our doing, lest any man should boast. We only boast, we only find our rejoicing in the work of Jesus Christ. Righteousness, our justification. Sanctification, our progressive walk in following Jesus Christ. Redemption, 
our glorification. We are saved. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be ultimately saved through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is not of anything that we do. How can we boast in ourselves? How can we boast in a man? How can we, like Paul like almost laughs here, Paul said, am I crucified? Have I been crucified? That's impossible. Only Christ, only the incarnate God-man could come and make that perfect sacrifice for you and for me so that we can boast only in Him, come to relationship with Him, have communion with Him. So it is against cultural norms and we are only to boast in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to exhort you in just a few short applications of how can we boast only in the Lord. Because it, it's easy to say, well, you know, I'm going to stop boasting necessarily. That seems kind of theoretical. But here, boasting in the Lord, as I've laid out, really, I think, in this present time, we don't have schools of philosophers necessarily. But we get around and, and we talk about what we know or where we've been or maybe even what God's done in our lives in an egotistical way. Thinking like, well, I've accomplished something here. I've gone through a lot. I know more than you about this kind of thing. And God gives us wisdom for sure and how to exhort other people. But when it's done in a man-centered way, then it's void of the gospel. So I want to encourage you to let all call tags and, and the name dropping must go. I remember uh, uh, the chancellor of DTS instructing us in commencement chapel last this past May about what Charles Spurgeon said to a graduating class at, in London. He said, everything must go. You must not regard... Na- you must not... Uh, regard uh, face or place or, or anything of that nature. That it's, it's not that I am something special. In fact, we shouldn't even uh, take grace as a license, but that it's, it's, it's all about Christ. And it's all about what he's done in our lives. And therefore, we're exalted, or we are inspired to worship him and to give him praise, and boast only in him. So, let all the other call tags go. Let the name dropping go. And then, self-trust must be turned in for the power of God. That if I think that I can make it, or if I can be of value in and of myself, then I'm, I'm nothing. I have to rely on Jesus Christ, and the power of God revealed through his Son. No gift, no power, no wisdom, as Stephanie sang just in this song about how his deep love for us. No gift, no power, no wisdom, but only in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ we are to boast. So I ask of you, which compass are you following? I ask of myself, which compass am I following? Where do you, where do you find your foundation? Is it in the cross of Christ? Is it in what is regarded as foolishness to the world? Do you rejoice in that it's foolishness to the world? When people ask you who you are, do you say, I am of Christ, 
and you rejoice if they laugh at you. Where do you find your foundation? Christ is our solid rock, and we have no other ground, no other anchor. The world's anchor is on sifting sand. They're floating out in an ocean, not knowing where to drop anchor. Yet we have an anchor. We have a solid rock. We have a foundation. We have a point of orientation. Let the cross be your compass. Stay in view of the cross. Here, let the name the name of Christ wherever you go. Give Christ the credit for every good thing in your life, and don't play the name game. Boast only in the cross of Christ, and therein find hope and freedom and forgiveness and eternal life. For some of you, maybe young or old, who never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to encourage you to do so, to enter that first stage we talked about that the Corinthians had already entered in. They had received new life in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that uh, we are all sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. But that through the cross of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, if we believe on him as our Savior, we can have eternal life. And we can enter into relationship with Jesus Christ. We can have, uh, uh, we can have communion with the Father through Christ. And for all of the rest of us who have entered into this new life, like I did when I was five years old, and I rejoice in the work of Christ, let us boast in the Lord alone. Let us rejoice in what is perceived as foolishness in the world's eyes and follow the compass of the cross. Follow the compass of the cross. Thank you.